Would you turn your Bibles, please, to uh, Psalm 115? We're continuing our series looking at these Psalms called the Hallel Psalms, the ones that, uh, as you look through the book of Psalms, there's 150 Psalms, there's five books of them. Um, and as I'm discovering, because uh, a fair bit of this is new to me, I'm, I'm learning about this as we go along, which I find quite exciting. Uh, there's collections of psalms within the big 150. And so there's this collection that runs from Psalm 113 through to Psalm 118 that are called the Hallel Psalms because one of the constant themes is praise and Hallel means praise. Uh, Hallelujah means praise Yahweh, praise God. Uh, And these were the psalms that were sung because the psalms were songs. We've lost the tunes, we've got the words, but the psalms were once sung. And, uh, and these were the songs that were sung at the Jewish Passover. So as we're leading up to Easter, we are joining with Jesus, who wrote these words by his spirit, uh, in the songs that he would have sung the night before he went to the cross. Now that's extraordinary, isn't it? What a privilege. But as we read these words, these should be deepening our appreciation of what it was that Jesus did. And what he was going through as he did it. So let's read Psalm 115. We'll pray before we do. um, And then we'll come to God's word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the treasure of your word. And uh, we thank you for these, these wonderful words that we're about to read now. And we ask that you would reveal your son, the Lord Jesus, through these. Uh, We pray that you would deepen our love for the Lord Jesus as we consider these words today and deepen our understanding of all that he did for us in laying down his life uh, and then being raised from the dead. And we ask that you would deepen to our hope in your good purposes in our lives and your hope for this world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. 
Well, let's see that last bit. Praise the Lord. Can we say hallelujah together? That's what it is. Hallelujah. Right? Praise the Lord. It's, the, um, it's one of the few Hebrew words that's come into the Greek. Now, if you were to flip across to Psalm 150, let's do that really quickly. This is a bonus. Uh, but Psalm 150, the end of the collection of 150 Psalms, the five books of Psalms, how does it finish? Finishes with hallelujah, praise the Lord. You know, the next time we read about that, the next use of the word hallelujah in the Bible is Revelation 19, which is the great celebration of the end of all things where God's people are gathered together in eternity. And that's the next time after Psalm 150 in the Bible where we read the word hallelujah. Is that something to look forward to? The day when we'll be gathered around the throne of the risen Lord Jesus, celebrating through all eternity, praise the Lord, hallelujah, thank you for welcoming us into your kingdom. Wow, what a treat that'll be. Well, Psalm 115, let's turn back there and let's, let's think about it. And, and uh, I've, I've called my talk this morning, Where Are Your Gods? Uh, so perhaps you can, there should be an outline somewhere, is there? Uh, if there is, you're welcome to follow it. Uh, but where are your gods? Uh, and a question I'd like to ask is, how can we be confident in a sceptical world? Because look at this, uh, verse 2 says, Why should the nations say, where is their God? Have you ever had anybody say to you, where is your God? Have you ever had that? Have you had anybody mock you for believing in things that you can't see? I have. Uh, it's a pretty common thing. I'd believe it if I could see it. Have you ever heard anybody say that? I'd be- of course they wouldn't. Did you know that? Even if they saw it, they probably still wouldn't believe. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment. But we live in a world now where people say we've got to listen to the science. So everything, we've got to follow the science. And that sounds so commendable and so so clever, really. Listen to the science. And so they're saying if science can't prove it, then we don't need to believe it. And so you'll meet people these days who, who will tell you, well, you can't prove God scientifically, therefore I'm not going to listen to him. I'm not going to believe in him. Well, just because something can't be proved in a test tube doesn't stop it being true. Because to my knowledge, you can't prove love in a test tube, can you? Is there some way you can weigh love on a scale and say, well, look, there it is. But is love real? Florists everywhere on February the 20th, what is it, February the 14th, are hoping love is real, right? Right. but we, if, you've, if you've ever experienced love, you know love's real. There are certain things that you can't see and yet we're sure they're true. Science doesn't have the last word on everything. That's why poets and painters and musicians exist, to put into some tangible form things that are actually beyond our senses. But nonetheless, we live in a world that thinks it's outgrown the need for God. That's the way I see it. We live in a a post-God world where we've come to this stupid belief, I think, that that somehow we've grown too clever for for God. And so people will say, well, where is your God? Uh, I've got friends who were very close to being burned out on Black Saturday uh, back in 2009 and and they fought and defended and saved their house. But their next-door neighbour, they live out of town, they're on a few acres, their next-door neighbour just down the road said, where's your mate in the sky now? 
because the flames didn't come anywhere near him the fluke of the fires on that day drove the the flames to my friend's place but kept him from being at risk at all and he says where's your mate in the sky now and he taunted them who likes being taunted who likes being made an object of ridicule i don't and yet people will say where is your god i'd believe him if i could see him well here's the question does it make sense for us here to trust in a god that we can't see does that make sense i want to say it does and i hope over the course of this next little while you'll agree with me because i think it makes perfect sense to believe in a god that we can't see now psalm 113 if you had a quick look back there you'll see that uh that the exalted god yahweh the covenant God of Israel, he stoops down to save the poor, to save the weak, and he lifts them up and exalts them. Psalm 114 is a celebration of the Exodus, where God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. And even the creation trembles, the psalmist says, because psalmists are poets and they use language that's meant to stir us up. And he says, even the creation trembled when God did what he did to save his people out of slavery in Egypt. But now, Psalm 115, we don't hear much about creation, but we do hear that the nations are mocking. So we've had this high point and now we're down in the depths again. Well, what would Jesus have felt while he was singing this song on the night before he went to the cross? Have you ever thought much about the humanity of Jesus? We, we, we worship a God who has revealed himself as a human. And Jesus is both God and man. He's not 50% God and 50% man. He's 100% God and 100% human, all at the same time. Now, it's very difficult for people as finite and limited as me and you to really get our heads around what that means. But we're told that Jesus grew in knowledge. How does any of us grow in knowledge? In anything? By learning. Where did Jesus learn what he knew about God? From the scriptures. And so in Luke chapter 2 we read of him confounding the scholars with how much he knew when he was just a boy. We read in the book of Hebrews that he was made complete by suffering. So his humanity was tested and it was proved to be complete in its humanness because Jesus suffered. So Jesus had to learn things that we have to learn too in his humanity. Without ever ceasing to be God, Jesus needed the scriptures to teach him who God is and who he is. And yet, In an extraordinary way, Jesus, by his spirit, wrote these words that he had to come to learn the truth of. Now, it'll take you the rest of eternity to work out how that works, but but nonetheless, that's what we need to, to remember. So what did Jesus learn from Psalm 115? Well, I think you can sum it up this way. Unlike senseless idols, Israel's God is the creator of all, and because he's the creator of everything, he's worthy of praise... And he's worthy of praise too because of the blessing and protection and help that he gives to his people. Now the night before Jesus went to the cross, he needed to know that God would help him. And Psalms like Psalm 115 would have helped him to realise that. 
So let's have a look through the psalm, verses 1 to 3. First things first, um, glorify God who's faithful and he's invisible and he's free. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Now this is a communal request. This is a group of people. So the psalmist has written words that the community is meant to echo and, uh, and as they do, they're speaking out to Yahweh, the sovereign covenant God, O Lord, and they're saying, we don't want glory. We want the glory to go to you. Now, is that an honest statement? How many of us like just a little bit of glory? It's nice to be praised, isn't it? Isn't it? Don't we like the occasional pat on the back? Good job, well done. It's not wrong to do that, by the way. Jesus says a labourer is worthy of his hire. right? So it's not wrong to give encouragement and, and to praise people. But in the end... The genuine child of God wants God to have the glory. Now, we've spoken about glory before. It means brilliance, magnificence. It means the things that make someone worthy of being praised. And we want the praise and the honour to go to God. Why do we want the praise and the honour to go to God? According to the second line of verse 1, for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, if you've read the Psalms much you'll be familiar with that term steadfast love, won't you? It turns up again and again and again. Now, when you read that little phrase, it's a a phrase that would be good if you're an underliner to underline it and to remember it. Because whenever you read that little phrase steadfast love, it's code. It's meant to trigger a memory. Now, words do that at times, don't they? But this is supposed to take us all the way back to Exodus 34. Now, in Exodus 34, Israel's been rescued from Egypt and Moses has a meeting with God. And God reveals himself by his name, Yahweh, I am. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, steadfast love means love that can be trusted. Love that will grab a hold of you and never let you go. Love that... You don't deserve, but is lavished on you as an expression of the character of the one who's lavishing it. That's God. So what kind of God do we worship and serve? A God who is full of steadfast love. So when you read those words, you're meant to go, where have I heard that before? Oh, that's right, Exodus. What did God do in Exodus? Oh, he rescued a people for himself. And he took them through the wilderness and he planted them eventually in the promised land. So when you read steadfast love, it's not just some toss-off line that you read in a greeting card. This is a word which is supposed to bring your mind, to your mind a whole forest of associations. Has anybody heard of Bob Dylan here? <laughs> Does his name mean anything to anybody? He turns 80 this year. But one of the most famous concerts Bob Dylan ever gave was in 1966 in Manchester, England. Bob had grown up being a folky, strumming an acoustic guitar and, and having kids sitting at his feet while he strummed these songs about revolution and change and all the rest of it. He was the spokesperson for a generation, people used to say. But then he went electric and started playing an electric guitar. And for the people who thought that folk music could only really be pure if it was played without any amplification at all, when he went electric, people felt betrayed. And so in England, 
he took a full-on rock and roll band with him and they here they were playing in Manchester and the first bit of the concert he did just on his acoustic guitar so that was all right but then when the band came out and they started playing loud eventually someone yelled out Judas <laughs> one word and Bob knew what they meant because he knew enough of the Bible to make sense of that it's a code word it means you've betrayed us all that we used to think you stood for you've let us down so words sometimes have these great associations that go with them steadfast love is one of them it's only one word in Hebrew but it means the love of the God who rescues who saves and who will lead you through because he's committed himself to you with a love that you don't deserve is that a good word so when you read steadfast love it's going to take you back to exodus and that's what it's doing here as part of the passover now this steadfast love of god makes him worthy of being honored and glorified and that's what his people like us want above all else but not everybody wants it and so verse two why should the nation say where is their god so this is an insult but it's not recorded as an insult here it's it's recorded as a prayer because God's people are saying to God why do they say that and they can't believe it they're incredulous they can't believe that anybody would be so stupid as to think that because you can't see God he's not real because they're convinced he is how do they know that because they're the result of the exodus they cast their mind back to when God rescued his people and they say we're the living proof that God is real here we are and so verse 3 they answer their own prayer in a sense our God is in the heavens he does all that he pleases now when we read he does all that he pleases that doesn't mean God is pleasing himself it doesn't mean that God is a pleasure-seeking God kicking back with us sweet drinks by the pool right it doesn't mean that God is a God of whim who just does any old thing that word there means that God does what he wills can you trust a God who is rich in steadfast love and faithfulness can you trust his will will his will work out will it be good for you would you say a God who's revealed himself as a rescuer you can trust his will and that's what it means to say God's in heaven he does all that he pleases well we've heard those taunts before haven't he where's where's your god uh it it, it happens a lot Uh, the earliest christians were called atheists there were three main charges that were leveled against the earliest christians in the days of ancient rome Uh, they were called atheists because no one could see their god they didn't have statues they didn't have temples it wasn't until the third century that they even had their own buildings they met in houses or wherever they could and so they were they were called atheists they were also called uh, cannibals because they'd heard about eating body and blood and they figured that must mean that they were eating children that was one of the rumors that went around but as well as that they'd heard that they practiced incest and so the earliest christians went around with these charges leveled against them which none of them were true but that's what they had to put up with and to be accused of being an atheist in those days was to say you are a threat to our society 
Because the people in those days had the idea that if you displeased the gods of your town, they'll punish you. And so they said, where's your God? They say, he's in heaven. They say, we've got no evidence. You'll make our God angry. And that's why Christians got themselves into so much trouble. Like I say, we've got lots of people who say, where's your God? I was on the train on the way to theological college a few years ago. I was the only person on the Druin platform until this man shuffled up next to me. It was the middle of the day. I had a late class and I was reading a book because I had to do some reading before I got down there. And he said, g'day digger. What are you up to? I said, I'm studying. He goes, what are you studying? I said, theology. He says, oh, I need to talk to you. And so he sat and talked to me all the way to Flinders Street, all the way from Druin to Flinders Street, about 90 minutes. And we had a fascinating conversation. He was a lovely guy. But when he realised that I was reading theology and that I actually believed in God, he says, I'm an atheist. Now, he was a very respectful atheist. At one point, he actually said to me, look, I'm going to shut up and you tell me everything you want me to know and then I'm going to get you to shut up and I'm going to tell you what I think. I thought, fair deal, right? You've got to respect a bloke who thinks like that. But anyway, early in the conversation before we got to that, he says, I'm an atheist, but I've had a miracle. And so he told me that when he was 16, he left home and went to live in North Melbourne in a boarding house and someone came in with a gun and shot the gun and he said it went in one side of my neck and came out the other and I survived. I don't, I don't know if it's possible, I didn't bother arguing with him, but he told me it was. He said, I got the scar, he did too. But he says, but I don't believe. So when people say, oh, I'd believe if I could see, chances are they won't. But nonetheless, this is a charge that we have to live with. How are we going to defend ourselves and our faith in a world that says we can only believe if we see? I, I heard some years ago, you know what the best question to ask an atheist is? Do you know what the best question to ask an atheist is? If I could prove it, would you believe it? Now, I tried that on an atheist once, and he said, no. Which means that people who don't believe often don't want to believe. Now, occasionally, you'll, you'll get in that conversation where you'll be able to talk to someone, you'll be able to lay out all the reasons why, but it's fairly rare... But in the end, whether you believe or whether you don't is very often a matter of the will. Atheists aren't nearly as logical as they would have us believe very often. Anyway, there's a restlessness that goes with not believing in God. And if you don't believe in God, you'll believe in something. So what do people believe in? Well, verses 4 to 8. They believe in idols, says the psalmist. So the idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And so we work out there between verses 4 to 7 that these idols can't speak, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't smell, they can't feel, they can't even walk. In other words, they need to be carried. Poor old idols. Imagine having to be carried everywhere or being set in place and never being able to move. Where's the God of Israel? He's in heaven. He does all that he pleases. Not like these idols. But to top it off, these idols are the creation of humans. Now, does that make any sense at all? To worship something that you've made. Back when I was at Teachers College, 
uh, a friend of mine was a very good potter. And I went to watch him in the potting studio one day. There he was, sitting at the potter's wheel, raising up beautiful pot after beautiful pot and then pressing it down again. And he goes, have you ever tried working on a potter's wheel? I remember when I did, go all over the place, right? But when Mark did it, and I thought, gee, I'd keep that one, pushes it down again. Oh, that's a good one. Straight down again. You see, you can do what you like when you're a potter, can't you? Who was in charge of the clay? And I thought, well, that makes a pretty nice vase, that one. No. He wanted to get better and better and better at the art of throwing pots, of having them go exactly where he wanted. And so for him, the practice was was getting to the point of, of being able to do that. But who was in charge? When you make something, you own it. And you can do as you please with it. When you make an idol... Does it make any sense at all to worship it? Because the creator is greater than the created. Doesn't that make sense? Now the passage that Dave read to us before from Isaiah follows hard on from this... It's actually quite a humorous passage in Isaiah 44. Read it when you get home about the stupidity of worshipping something you've made yourself. You you carve the lump of wood, you cook your tea over one bit and you worship the bit that's left, right? (laughs) doesn't make sense these idols they can't do anything have a look at verse 8 those who make them become like them so do all who trust in them that's a pretty stunning thing to say those who make them become like them another way of saying that is we become like what we worship now think about that because God's created us to worship him and if we won't worship him we will worship something and we'll become like that now the problem with becoming like your idols well what would you say about something that couldn't see speak hear smell move what would you say about that thing that would be lifeless wouldn't it would that be a fair comment well lifeless is just a polite way of saying dead isn't it The problem with becoming like what you worship, if you're worshipping something dead, is that you'll become like it. And so when you get to the end of the psalm, we realise that that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord. So whether it's an idol or someone worshipping an idol, they've got that in common. They don't praise the Lord. Nor do any who go down into silence. Now, I used to work in the funeral industry. In my first year at Ridley College, I needed some part-time work and I rang the local funeral director and he was kind enough to give me some. So I was paid to go to funerals. And I went to a lot. And it's really interesting going to funerals. Because in an hour, or two if they really like you, and if the funeral director's not too busy that day, everything about you is summed up in front of the people that care enough to be there. And it's really interesting to see how people want their lives summed up or how other people think it's a fair thing to sum up their life, right? So you go in and you'll see footy scarves or you'll get to the graveside and they'll put on the Essendon Club song and up go red and black balloons. Or there'll be a motorcycle jersey or there'll be a uniform of some description. But all the things that signify what this person stood for while they were alive, they're brought into the funeral home. They're put in the foyer. 
I've seen what people are buried with. The first visit I had to the crematorium in Traugan, um, I was being shown the ropes and the fellas there in the room where the, the oven is, they've got a shelf that says survivors. These are the things that made it through the kiln. There was a little bomber, a little black and red bomber. But the funeral before that we got there, he said, look what was in the last one. There was a camp oven. So the deceased had been buried with a camp oven with potatoes and sausages. <laughs> so this is a guy that loves camping. Now the camp oven came through, I think it would make a fantastic advertisement, you know, our camp oven survived the test of cremation. <laughs> They'll go well on your next camping holiday. But the contents were as vaporised as the bloke they were supposed to honour. When your life's summed up, how will they sum it up? What will be the things that characterise who you are? The things that really matter, that when you have that one hour, people will say, this is the best way to symbolise the life that they've lived. The people who mock people in an in, who believe in an invisible God have a question to answer. Will your God grant you peace, comfort, hope and joy when your life comes to an end? They're fair questions, aren't they? Because we're all going that way. We're all going to die unless the Lord Jesus comes back first. We're all going to meet God. And the challenge for anybody about anything they believe is, will your belief, will what you have worshipped, what, what you've devoted yourself to, will it stand the test of death and the meeting with God that we all face? Will the lead up to death be one where you can face it with peace? Now, today is actually the first anniversary of my dad's death. And I was with him when he went. And I was with my mum when she went. And they woke me up, the nurses in the hospital, and they said, your mum's gone. And I looked at her and I thought, yep, she has. But I'd shed my tears, and so I didn't cry then. But I had this thought, and I hope it doesn't strike you as strange or irreverent, but as I looked at my mum, I thought, if Christianity's not true... It's a very successful myth. Because right now, when the person who... I've never known a day without mum. That makes sense, doesn't it? She's always been at the other end of the telephone when I needed to talk to her. She's the one that taught me so many useful things. And I couldn't imagine life without her, and yet now I was going to have to make it. And here she is, and I thought, yep, she's dead. But I didn't fall apart. You know why? Because I know I'll see her again. I know deep down I will see mum again. And I believe, and right there and then I thought, this is true and it works. When you really need it, it works. Will worshipping an idol work? People can mock us for believing things that we can't see. But will their belief hold them together in the test of the end and on the test of, the, of, of what comes after the end? 
Well, there's blessings for trusting Yahweh, verses 9 to 15. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. So there's three categories of people. Israel, house of Aaron, you who fear the Lord. It's said again and again and again, three times, trust in the Lord, trust in Yahweh. Right, why would you do that? Well, don't forget he's the God of steadfast love. He's rescued you, right, so he's proved that in history. He's proved himself, though invisible, to be entirely trustworthy. Verse 12, the Lord has remembered us. There's another important word. That's what happened in Exodus 2 when the Hebrew people were groaning under the weight of Egyptian slavery. It says Yahweh remembered. That doesn't mean he's forgotten. This is another code word. It means, right, now's the time to do something. It's an action word. This means Yahweh has his sleeves rolled up and he's about to go into action. We don't always know why it takes him so long. We're never told, so we have to trust him to get the timing right. But when he purposes to do something, it will be done. And so when we hear that Yahweh remembered, that means he remembered us then, he'll remember us now. He will act to save those he loves. The Lord has remembered us. What will he do? He'll bless us. He'll bless the house of Israel. He'll bless the house of Aaron. He'll bless those who fear the Lord. That's us. Do we fear Yahweh? Fear is another way of saying have faith in, understand who he is and who you are in relation to him. I hope we do. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Yahweh blesses the small and the great, the low are the things that, that no one else thinks of much use. Yahweh blesses them. So to worship a God that you can see, Makes no sense at all because chances are you've made it. But to pledge yourself to a God you can't see makes perfect sense because he's a God who, though invisible, is strong and active and he's proven himself by what he's done. Now, how does this relate to Jesus? What does Jesus think about these sorts of things? We'll read these last three verses. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, we are not like the dead. But how long will this praise go on for? From this time forth, now that it's been brought to our attention, we are resolving to make sure that we are people who say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you be the glory. So the psalm begins and ends with this intention to live a life where God is praised. Is that a good life? It is. Because it's a life that makes sense. It's a life that says, yes, God is real. This is his world. He's given it to people like us, but it is his. And to understand who God is and to understand how we relate to him just makes sense to pretend that God's not real is foolishness so we will bless the Lord from this time forth forevermore so how does this help Jesus the night before he's betrayed well praising Yahweh is the appropriate response to salvation and Jesus according to the New Testament knew everything that was going to happen to him. He knew he was going to die. We read that in the Gospel of John. John also records 
that Jesus lived for the Father's glory. He says, I don't do anything to bring glory to myself. At various points, especially through John's Gospel, we read that Jesus lived to bring glory to God. So he's doing what Psalm 115 verse 1 says to do, and he's made a career of it. In John chapter 1, very famous verse, chapter 1 verse 14 of John, the word became flesh. Do you know it? What happened? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, we have beheld his glory. He's already said that the word has existed from all eternity. That's Jesus. The word became flesh. God became a human, says John, and lived with us. And we have beheld his glory. Glory as of the one and only. Full of grace and truth, says John. Did you know that grace is another way of saying steadfast love? Did you know that truth is another way of saying faithfulness? What John's saying in John 1.14 is saying Jesus is Yahweh. So when Jesus sings this song about a God who remembers his people and who is to be praised for his steadfast love and faithfulness, he sings it as a human, but he sings it as the son of God to his father, knowing that God will preserve him even through death. Look at verse 17 again. The dead do not praise the Lord nor do any who go down into silence. Jesus knew as he sang this, he'd learned it from singing it Passover after Passover, that God would not desert his faithful people even in death. Because the praise of Yahweh has to go on for how long? Forever. So what difference did these words make to Jesus the night before he went to the cross? He knew he could rely on his father to spare him eternal death, the death of silence, the death of idolaters. Jesus knew he could rely on his father to raise him. It didn't stop him from being fearful of the the manner of which he was going to die. And who wouldn't be? Jesus knew about crucifixion. He'd seen others crucified. And this is, this is an extraordinary thing, and we've really got to grab a hold of this. Don't believe what you see in the paintings and the sculptures. Jesus was a real human who, when the nails went through, it really hurt. And he did that voluntarily. And in the same way that the nations say, where's your God? Isn't that what they said to Jesus when he hung up on the cross? Where's your God now? If he was on your side, he'd bring you down. But Jesus, as God the Son, God in the flesh, knew that if he deserted the cause and came down, we'd be left to our idols and the death of silence and separation from God. You see, Jesus knew that God's in heaven and he does all that he pleases. Another way of saying God does all that he pleases is that God does as he wills. And Jesus knew from Isaiah 53 that it was the Lord's will that the servants suffer. Now, these are extraordinary things. Jesus suffered for you and for me because it was his Father's will. 
because there was no other way that our sins could be cancelled. So, how do we conclude? We've got a God who remembers his people. We've got a God who stoops down and suffers to save. We've got a God who has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus, who learned who he was and who sang these truths and who steeled himself for the suffering that was about to come his way by recalling words like Psalm 115. God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. Will we commit ourselves to the worship and the eternal praise of God in the same way that our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, did? Will we do that? Does that make sense? Or are you going to give yourself to the worship of idols, things that you've made yourself? No, God's in heaven. We can't see him, but we know he's real because he's acted in history, in the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, loving Father, these are, these are great and wonderful truths. They're, they're too deep for us to really understand. So please help us by your spirit to, to grapple with them and to take them to heart and to live in the light of them. And we ask that you would help us to surrender ourselves to you uh, so that we will bless you from this time forth and forevermore for all that you have done as the God of steadfast love and faithfulness, the God who remembers your own. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and the way he went to the cross uh, to pay the price for our sins. We thank you that he trusted himself to you uh, and so we can trust ourselves to you for whatever it is that's causing us grief. And we look ahead with great hopefulness to, to being raised and singing hallelujah throughout all eternity and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.